Welcome to The Mend, a podcast sponsored by the Center for Crime Victim Services here in Vermont to focus on services for victims of crime and those people who are working with them. I'm Anna Nasset, your host for this bi-monthly podcast, and today on the show I'm delighted to have my friend Matt Roche here from Norwich University. Thank you for being here. Um, he's here with Title IX to discuss his role in um, what Title IX is on universities and how that serves everyone involved. Um, this show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concepts for victims, survivors, and crime. We want to acknowledge the healing process and provide resources not only in our state, but throughout our country as well that benefit people. As always, I like to begin with a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss these topics. But with that in mind, we may occasionally hear a story, talk about our own situation, maybe mental health um, or different crimes and other sensitive subject matter. So we urge you to take care of yourself and listen at your own discretion. Today, I'm delighted to have Matt here on the show. Matt served as the Title IX Coordinator, Director of Diversity, Equality and Inclusion, and the head tennis coach of Norwich University. He has been with Norwich since July 2018, after a stint at Lynn University in Florida as the Director of Disability Services and Deputy Title IX Coordinator. He serves as an expert in the Title IX field and at national, presents at national conferences, including the LEAP Sexual Misconduct Symposium that we got to work on together, uh, which launched in March of 2019. He holds a bachelor degree from Notre Dame College, a law degree from Vermont Law School, and is a fellow Ohioan such as myself. So thank you so much for being here today, Matt. Thank you for having me. Yes. Um, so I'd love to start by just our listeners getting to know you a little bit better. Can you share a little bit about your history and how you found yourself not only in the legal profession, but specifically in the Title IX world? Yeah, so um, growing up, I always wanted to be a politician. Um, and so to me, the best way to do that was to go to law school. Um, so very early on, I set my career path um, as soon as I got into college, I was like, I want to study political science. So I could double major in political science and pre-law, um, just in order to get into law school. Um, through the law school application process, I ended up applying to eight different schools, um, got into all of them. Um, and Vermont Law School was actually a REACH school because I, I, at the same time, wanted to do environmental law. And I'm like, there's no way I'll get into the number one program in the country. Um, and to my surprise, I did. And so that's where I ended up. Um, which was my first stint into Vermont. Um, once there, though, quickly discovered while I loved the law um, and loved policy making and decision making and the politics of it, um, I didn't fundamentally like studying law. Okay. Um, so, but I had already invested in law school and I was like, I had to find another route of something that I really liked. And so, it got on the process of, what have I done throughout my life that I've really enjoyed? And for me, it was always education. So I knew I wanted to go into the educational field. Um, and there's many ways nowadays, especially in higher ed, to use a law degree. Um, you'll see more and more college presidents have law degrees, um, and a lot of high-level administrators have law degrees. Um, so I wanted to use my law degree to, the advantage, um, to my advantage in the educational setting. And so that's where I went was education and I got a general counsel internship at Thomas More College in Kentucky um, my last semester of law school and that kind of just set the tone for me um, first job out of school 
was a compliance manager and it also had Title IX aspects to it. And I really kind of fell in love with the process and policy and procedures that were tied to Title IX and what it did for students mm -hmm. and the supports that it put in place for both parties that were involved in any sort of incident um, and the supports. Because what I don't like that people have a tendency to describe Title IX offices as is an investigative office. While it's mm -hmm. a phase of what we do, we are also a support and resource office. And our goal is to make sure that everyone has access to their education. And so I feel like being a Title IX coordinator, you have a bigger impact on a lot of students' ability to stay in school than many other members of an educational institution. Awesome. Which would lead me to the big question is, what is Title IX? I'm familiar with it, and you're, you're kind of already reaching right into that. Um, so can you just explain to our listeners who might not understand what Title IX is, how it started, how it works, just a brief overview of it? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what Title IX actually is. Um, so Title IX was a 1972 civil rights law uh, that was passed to prohibit sex discrimination in the education setting. Um, so a lot of people believe that Title IX solely is around gender equity issues, and that's a piece of it. Um, so some think it only applies to women, which is false. It applies to everybody that's involved in education setting. Um, and a lot of people associate it with gender equity and athletics specifically, mm -hmm. which again is a small aspect. So the law itself is only 37 words. Very small law for federal legislation, um, but it is being expanded right now to a 126-page document by the government that is expanding Title IX. So while the actual language of the law only says um, prohibits sex discrimination in education setting, other laws have come in and su supplemented it okay. um, to expand it to what a Title IX office is on campus. So laws such as the Violence Against Women's Act, the Cleary Act, the Campus Save Act, things like that have all expanded it to include sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, <coughs> excuse me, discrimination, um, sexual exploitation, stalking, things like that that would not originally have just been encompassed within the Title IX legislation. Awesome. Um, so its history is really rooted in equal opportunities. How has Title IX evolved along? I mean, there's obviously this huge document that's being produced that we won't even get into right now. <laughs> but how has it evolved into working on campuses? I'm going to go specifically kind of into sexual assaults and crimes yep. such as that. So how has it evolved into working with um, students, faculty, everyone on campuses? Yeah, so there's a lot of facets of what, in my mind, an effective Title IX office does. Um, one, it is a reporting body. So on campus, our staff and faculty are all mandatory reporters or what we would call a responsible employee. Um, so we're constantly training them on what their obligations are, what to report, how to report, where to report, um, what to include in those reports, what services we can offer, um, what is going to happen when a report is filed. Um, is everything going to automatically turn into an investigation that has discipline tied to it? Or is there informal resolutions? Or are we just going to give education? Um, are we going to provide academic accommodations, housing accommodations, things like that? Um, so one thing that as I came into Norwich, um, they were in a, a tough situation with past events that had recently happened. Um, and so there was a lack of trust in the Title IX office, which you'll see at a lot of campuses. <coughs> and so what I really wanted to do was make sure that we became a visible 
body on campus. So students began seeing us in a different light and having that trust that we're going to follow our po process and policy, that there's going to be an outcome to a case, and that we really are going to not shove anything under the rug, which is what you hear a lot in this area. Um, and that is one thing that I don't think should ever happen, right? Right. Um, so as you do this, reports just start to go up, right? Because the trust is there, the trust in the process is there, um, naturally reports start going up. So, so you're seeing a higher percentage of reports on campus. Yeah, so my first year we saw almost a 300% increase in reporting. Wow. And that's because you were building trust yep. with students, with, <coughs> with everyone, and yep. yeah, and, and I've there, seen evidence of that on your campus of the work you've done. Yeah, and there was just an understanding of what to report mm -hmm. and what was going to happen. So on a small campus, you have a, a lot of other fears that exist that maybe in general society don't exist. Um, say we were involved in an incident together, I'm likely still going to see you on a daily basis. Yep. Because we are in a closed, confined area. While there might be a no contact order saying we can't speak to each other, you're still going to see me. And so that is, creates an extra amount of fear that doesn't exist outside of a college setting. Um, but sorry, I, I know I'm jumping all over. But, That's okay. So um, the other thing that an office does, we do a ton of programming. Mm -hmm. um, programming, training, awareness education, prevention education. Um, raising awareness is what's going to create your prevention. Yep. And eventually, once that prevention education is out there, our numbers should start to decline. Um, we're not at that point yet, um, but our office has a goal of at least one or two programs every single month, um, and they're focused on different things. Some are on gender discrimination, some are on dating violence workshops, some are on sexual assault awareness. Um, and, and our office has really expanded out more now to discrimination, not just in sex and gender based, but also in race and religion and all the other protected categories as well. Yeah, and you've done a great job creating programming over there. I mean, we know each other, and so I, I see the different programming you're doing, and I've been lucky enough to come over and participate, and just I feel like the work that you've done, um, especially getting the students involved and starting was it BLEEP, the Student yep. Coalition, um, has been huge to, to having not just the faculty saying things, but the students, your peers, I, I'm glad you brought Leap up. I can we talk yes, about that for a minute? Yes, absolutely. So I think this was a very novel idea um, that has turned into a great reporting function for the university. Um, so generally, a Title IX office, especially at a school like Norwich's size, has one or two people in it. Mm -hmm. There's not much bandwidth there. Right. Um, especially when you're receiving at least a report a day. So what we ended up doing was creating a student reporting arm to my office. And they're called the LEAP, which stands for Leadership, Education, Advocacy, and Prevention. And so what their functions were, so if they're core students, they got a promotion and rank in the core. Civilian students were just volunteers. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is they get the resource information. So if a student were to file a report at night, our LEAP reps could just give them that resource information so they have it available to them at night. And so they can become better informed on what they, if they want to report and what's going to happen if it does report. Mm -hmm. um, they also serve as mandatory reporters. So if a student comes to them and says, hey, I would like a resource folder, they're just going to give you a resource folder. However, if they say, I need a resource folder because I was sexually assaulted, they're now reporting that to the university and ensuring that the proper response is going to occur. Mm -hmm. um, and then they also help us with programming. And so what this has done is put a student in every single dorm room, every single dorm, okay. 
that has those resources on a nightly basis. Whereas we're not there at night, um, they still have the same resource and the outreach available to them that as if we were still there. That's awesome. Um, I think that's a great program and I mean, just being able to work with the students on some of the, the activities that I've come in for doing, it's just been delightful to work with them. And the pride that they take in being able to bring in a speaker or to be able to work with their peers is yep. really exciting. Um, can you just really quickly tell people what a mandated versus non-mandated reporter is? Yeah, so that's a tricky question. Yes. <laughs> <coughs> so under Title IX, they're called responsible employees. Um, Essentially, everybody, well, so there's a couple practices you could take. Most universities, about 90% are going to take that all employees are mandated reporters. Um, the only ones that are not are anyone that is a, works in mental health. So your counseling center, um, your health services center, so we have an infirmary or student health services, and your chaplain. Mm -hmm. So anyone working religious. Everyone else is a mandated reporter under Title IX. Okay. Um, there is some recent guidance that says you don't have to go that way. You could select and choose. But the challenge is when you start doing that, you're now siloing information. So the benefit of having as a mandatory reporter is that they're sending the students to the right office to get the support and resource that they need. Whereas um, a biology professor, if they're not a mandatory reporter and they try to handle it themselves, they may not know the proper protocol, proper response, or proper support that is needed. Right. Um, so siloing that information is dangerous, and so I recommend all colleges stay with the mandatory reporter obligation for everybody. Then you have a second entity, which is called a campus security authority, which is tied to the Cleary reports. Um, so Cleary is what is publicly available online. So even a private institution will have their annual security report online. Okay. And so that'll have how many sexual assaults happened on your campus, mm -hmm. how many stalking cases happened on your campus in the last calendar year, not academic year. Okay. And so the challenge with Cleary a little bit is that you don't even investigate it. As soon as it's reported to you, it goes in your public numbers. Whoa, okay. So even if you find no responsibility, they're always going to be in your numbers. Mm -hmm. But those are called campus security authorities, those reporting obligations. So those are a smaller number than as a responsible employee, um, but they're two reporting functions and they have a lot of overlap. Okay. Um, that makes sense. I know that I've had personally like friends of mine who are professors who are like one of them specifically who's a writing professor who you know d deals with creative writing mm -hmm. and so he now makes sure that all of his students know in the very first class of the very first you know some session or whatever like I am a mandated reporter because oftentimes things will come up that these students are writing about and him having to navigate that so I think it's that's actually a great example of a challenge that we have that mm -hmm. colleges have to kind of pick and choose what they want to follow up on. Yeah. Um, so creative writing. So I have made an exemption that if it is something done in a class piece of work that we are not going to be following up on unless okay. a student has specifically requested that they want resources. Right. Same thing, um, you have a student that was maybe sexually assaulted in high school before they got to us. Um, but they're talking about it and it gets reported to us. They're not going to want us to invade their privacy, um, but right. obviously it's something that has impacted them enough that they're still talking about it on a daily basis that we're going to do outreach and make sure that they have support and resources and understand what we have available on campus for them. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. <coughs> um, 
this is kind of a loaded question. I'm going to roll into two, but like, how does a Title IX investigation work on campus? And I mean, you can kind of bring that in, like, with the do you coordinate with state and local people, just with agencies such as that? Um, so, do you bring in local police and advocates? Just how does I don't know if you want to kind of pick a, a folk, fake story or a fake investigation, but just to kind of walk people through. Yeah. So I could tell you every school is going to be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So the biggest thing that I would say up front is some schools will use an in-house investigator model. Um, UVM is an example. The state college system uses their own investigators. Um, Norwich and a lot of the other private institutions in Vermont um, use external investigators. So we hire outside private law firms or um, retired state troopers that come in and do the investigations for us. Okay. Um, those investigations look very different as well. Some, the investigators will actually make a recommendation of whether a policy violation occurred or not. I do not want that. Um, we hire the outside investigators to be fact finders, essentially. Mm -hmm. So they're conducting all of our interviews for us. They provide us with transcripts. They collect all the evidence. Um, then they write me a report that includes the facts, the disputed facts, mm -hmm. the credibility assessments of everyone that they interviewed since I wasn't there. Okay, because you're not all, in the room. Right. Yep. And that's all I'm getting from them. Okay. And then I'm going to do our policy analysis. This is our policy. Okay. And I, once I do our policy analysis, I decide whether or not there's responsibility, and if there is responsibility, what the sanctions are. Okay. And there's always an appeal. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of just the tiny piece of the investigation. Now, if a student were to come in and say, I was sexually assaulted, what would happen is they would come in and meet with our Title IX case intake person, her name is Danielle, um, and she has a checklist of things that she goes through with every single person. Um, so that includes what the type of incident was, um, whether they want to report to police or not. Mm -hmm. So we never force anyone to report to the police. Okay. Um, we always give them the option, and if they do want to, we actually bring the police on campus and they meet in our office. Great. Um, generally, in my time at Norwich, I think out of... Um, I think we've only had about five go to the police. Okay. So it's a very rare number, a rare occasion for students to go to the police, but we always give the option. Mm -hmm. um, we also give them the option of meeting with CIRCLE or SACT. So CIRCLE works with dating and domestic violence victims, and SACT works with sexual assault victims. Yep. And those are our two agencies in our county here yep. of Washington County. So they will also come and meet confidentially with our students on campus. Okay. Um, and a lot of students do utilize that service because those will also help them get their RFAs from the court systems. Mm -hmm. um, and then they also, if they need to go get a rape kit done, yep. they could be in the room and go with them to the hospital to do that, whereas we cannot. Mm -hmm. um, so we do partner a lot with them. Um, Circle is actually going to be on campus on Friday um, for a big luncheon that we're having, tabling, um, raising awareness. Um, so we work with community partners frequently. The police department, Northfield Police, actually comes in and does self-defense courses with our students um, through our office. Um, so we're partnering with them in various ways so students see them on campus and aren't so intimidated right. by them being there. Um, but I, I'm going to jump back. That's fine. <laughs> so if we are running an investigation um, mm -hmm. and a student also wants the police to investigate, we are going to run a complete separate investigation from the police. So you're going to have two happening yep. simultaneously. Okay. So And the reason of that is... so. At Norwich, we are looking to see if a policy was violated. Okay. The police are looking to see if a crime was committed. Ah, okay. So that's the first big difference. The second is, 
our standard of proof is called preponderance of the evidence, which means 50% plus a feather. It's more likely than not that this occurred. Okay. That has to be proven in order to have a violation of the policy. Whereas the police standard is beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a much higher standard to prove. Yes. So what you'll find a lot is if they do report to both, the police will find no responsibility, but the university will find responsibility. Okay. And that will be fine in a court system because we're using two very different standards and we're in an administrative process whereas they're looking at a legal process. Yes. So oh, they're run separate okay. and at the same time we don't wait for them to do their investigation. They don't wait for us. Mm -hmm. um, we share information as needed, but at the same time we also have the protections of FERPA, right? The Family Educational Rights Prevention Act. Sure. FERPA. FERPA. Okay. Something along those lines um, <laughs> where we can't share student, share student data. Okay. Right? So there's a police exemption where they can subpoena from us and we have to give it to them unredacted. But otherwise, we're not just going to openly give information back and forth. That makes sense. So you can share information, but you're not working together. Yep. Which works for a better, fair, for everyone outcome. Yep. Um, so Title IX remains, your, your duty is to remain neutral. Correct. When you are doing an investigation of a complaint, how do you? How are you able to do this fairly? Um, whether that be your training, um, and yeah, so kind of start with that, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about like when invest investigating and interviewing victims. How are you able to keep that fairness yet also not re-traumatize, re-trigger, yep. hold that empathy? So if you could kind of just expand upon all of that. <coughs> <coughs> Certainly. So. Um, the first piece that I would say um, is as they're going through the intake process with Danielle, um, they're, giving, they're given a folder of everything that they're going to need to know in the process. So to me, it's better to have more information than not enough information. Um, and they, all, they get to take this home. So even though we're going to go over it quickly with them and go over piece by piece everything that's there, they're going to get to take it home and stew on it a little longer. Um, but in this folder, there's a couple of things both the complainant and the respondent. So the complainant is the one who files a complaint or is the accuser, and then the alleged is the respondent. Mm -hmm. Both of them have the right to an advisor in the process, meaning somebody that could sit in every meeting, whether it's with me, with Danielle, with our investigator, with the appeals officer, um, and serve as a second set of eyes and ears for that person, mm -hmm. right? Make sure that we're not misconstruing any statements. Make sure that we've documented everything properly. Make sure that we've collected the right evidence from them. Um, just the basic things. Um, and then they also serve as essentially a support person, right? They're so not- kind of in that advocate role without that, well- Well, so here, okay, probably Not quite. <laughs> okay, so, scrap that. <laughs> so there's, that's a good, good point though, because we're gonna, I'll draw a quick distinction. So you have advocates and you have advisors. Mm -hmm. So our advocates would be more like Rev Wick, our chaplain, the counseling center, um, those that have a confidential piece to them. Okay. So they cannot serve as an advisor in our process. Okay. However, an advisor is still a responsible employee. They're a support person for them, but if that student then discloses, yes, I committed the sexual assault, they have a legal obligation to tell us that this student admitted it to me. Okay. Yep. So they are more of a resource, is what I would say, mm -hmm. um, to help guide them through the process. Um, then the second thing that they get in that folder is a complainant and respondent's rights guide. 
Okay. So we lay it out. It reads like a patient's bill of rights. Mm -hmm. And it's one form, both for complainant and respondent. So both parties have the same exact rights in the process because we want it very clear that we are an impartial office. Yep. Um, our job is just to find the facts. Um, so we go through point by point with them. They sign off on it. They get to retain a copy. Um, then we go over the supports and resources for both, right? So I've already mentioned some of them, so no contact orders are things that we do very frequently. Um, housing accommodations, so say we live on the same floor and mm -hmm. we're involved in a case together. Probably not going to want to live next to each other. Right. So we will facilitate a housing move. We also have safe rooms on campus, so maybe we can't facilitate that housing move right away, but you feel unsafe being around me, I can put you in a safe room for the night. Okay. Um, where nobody else on campus knows where those are located. Um, we also um, can do academic accommodations. Maybe we're in the same classes. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be in the same class. Correct. Or maybe we're okay being in the same class, but we have a no contact order, so we need to notify the professor that these two can't be working together in groups. Yep. Um, so we are really more of a, that's why it's a Title IX coordinator. We're just coordinating the case behind the scenes. That um, makes sense. We're not actually running the investigations. Yes, I decide the case outcome, but I am very hands-off throughout the process. Yeah. Um, I also recuse myself from some cases, so maybe somebody on my tennis team is involved in a case. Mm -hmm. Or one of the LEAP kids yep. gets accused. I'm not going to be the coordinator that's overseeing that because I know them too well. Yep, absolutely. I, so we, we have backup Title IX coordinators. Yep. Yep. Um, but more on the, the victim front, what I would say, um, the re-traumatization is a big thing. So we've really adjusted our practices to kind of fit this. First of all, um, one of the only requirements for our outside investigators is that they are use trauma-informed practices, and they have to prove, provide certification showing that they utilize that. Um, so we use a benefit from United Educators, which is our insurance carriers, and so they are the ones that verify that, yes, they have the trauma-informed training that is required in order to serve as that investigator. Um, the second thing that we do is when we do intake, um, generally a lot of schools will ask a lot of questions at the intake process. We don't ask any questions. Um, that makes sense. If a student comes in, so generally we've already gotten a written allegation. Mm -hmm. So I was sexually assaulted on Sabine Field on this date. Yep. We'll come in. A sexual assault is going to trigger an investigation for us, right? We're going to come in. Say, we've received this report, we'll go over all the resources, the resolution options, see what that student wants to happen. Maybe they don't want an investigation to happen, and we try to honor those requests, but certain things we will override them. Mm -hmm. So, um, the example I gave, we're going to investigate, most likely. Right. Um, but a student still can come in and say, I don't want it investigated. So, after going through those things, um, what... Danielle will do then is say, is there anything else that I should know about this or that you would like us to know? And then if they want to go into telling their story, they can. Mm -hmm. But they have no obligation to tell us anything because when they're going to tell the story that is important is to the investigator right. who is having a running transcript of what is going on. Um, because when we're meeting, we are not recording our meetings. We're taking notes. Mm -hmm. as accurate as we can, but we want to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation you and make present. that student feel supported, Yeah. right? So it is more important for them to tell our investigators what is going on. Um, so we have completely removed questioning out of our intake process, which to me is a very victim-forward um, 
process to utilize. Absolutely. Um, I would say that's probably the biggest thing that we've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just the mandatory training for all of our investigators yeah. um, are probably the two biggest victim-centered things that we use. Well, and I think even being able to hand somebody a folder and to have an advisor. I mean, yep. when you're in that victim-centered place, which is definitely more of where I come from, of you know, people, you're trying to talk, you're trying to figure out what's happening. Like, you can't make sense of any right. of it. You're in that trauma place. So being able to have something that you can concretely go back to your room and look at being able to have an advisor who can be your ears, like those things are so in support of both parties. Um, obviously, like I said, I'm coming from more of the victim yep. place, but those are things that I just think are so huge and I know made a difference for me as I've moved through you know, the legal system outside of a school, but they're huge. Right, and so I, I think the other thing that we do do really well is connect them to those outside resources. Mm -hmm. um, our counseling center on campus is fantastic. Yep. Um, and so whether you are the accused party or the accusing party, we understand you're going through a ton of stress. Mm -hmm. um, you're a student, likely you're in the Corps of Cadets, likely you're a student athlete. You have a lot of things on your plate and then this comes out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Or maybe so you should have expected it to come. Right. But it's a stressful process, and it's not a process that is resolved quickly. Mm -hmm. So generally, these cases are going to take about two months. Yep. Two to three months. Um, so 60, count, 60 business days is the process time frame. That was outlined in the 2011 Dear Colleague letter from Barack Obama, mm -hmm. which was rescinded, but a lot of schools still use it as our guidance. Okay. And so that's what our process is, so 60 business days. So it is a lengthy process. Yeah, especially when you're a student. Right. I mean, and you and I both know like now like that's <laughs> short, but but yeah, for a student, that's a really long time. Right. So making sure that you're taking care of your own mental health mm -hmm. um, and not falling behind in your academics and all those other things are really important. And so that's why we make that first referral for them to our counseling center um, or bring Circle or SACT on campus to meet with them in person. Because mm -hmm. Circle and SACT also will do safety plans with our students. Awesome. That's great. And do you see, <coughs> just skip that question. Um, well, I feel like that's, like, I really like the practices that you're laying out. And I feel like they are, yeah, in support of both parties. And that's a very good thing. And, yeah, I look back on my own school days. It was not necessarily the way it went back then. Well, so, I yeah. Know, I look at, I mean, I graduated from college in 2013. Okay. Is that right? Yeah, 2013. I didn't even know we had a Title IX coordinator. No. And so I know you wanted me to save this for the end, but one positive thing that I, I'm seeing is this is a discussion every day on almost every college campus. Mm -hmm. And it is something that really has come to the forefront and that is being discussed, that is being addressed, and there's new schools coming up with new ways to deal with these things and address them in an appropriate manner. Um, and so it is frustrating to see the government really trying to get involved and saying that schools have gone too victim heavy or too respondent heavy. I think it's a misconception. I think schools really do the best that they can with the resources that they have. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not trained to run sex investigations. Right. I've learned how to do it really effectively and I would put our investigations up against pretty much anyone across the country, but we do the best that we can. And the volume that is there compared to if you look back in 2009 when I was in school, where I'd be shocked if they had one or two complaints. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so schools are getting the messaging out. 
and raising the awareness and the education around what is happening. Um, and so it, it's kind of a, a pro and a con of, I'm, I'm glad that it's happening, mm -hmm. but it's also saddening that the government is making it seem like schools are just out there to be the bad guy. Right, which I don't think is the case at all. And like you said, I mean, I graduated in 2002. I do not know if, I mean, I'm sure there was Title IX yep. on my campus. I had no idea at all about that. Um, in fact, I haven't really learned about it until I've started working more of the, this field. But, you know, when you talked earlier about how your reporting rates went up when, when you became, you know, the timeline coordinator on campus, it's not a bad thing. No. And people would view that as a bad thing, but it's because people are becoming more comfortable and it's, you know, it's not focusing on one or the other. It's just really being like, we're here to help yeah. and we're here to, to do due diligence. And, and so I would say anyone that is interested in going into this field has to be comfortable with exactly what you just said. Mm -hmm. That if you're going to do this well, reports are going to go up quickly. Yep. Um, and so when I was going through my hiring process at Norwich, I said, the first question, have you read our policy? No, I haven't. Because my understanding is you guys are in a rough spot right now, and I'm going to come in and make it better. Yep. Number one. Number two, if you hire me, you need to expect our numbers to skyrocket. And they thought I was joking, but they were comfortable with it. Awesome. And then they yeah. came up really quickly, and they continue to go up. And eventually they will stabilize, um, but they're never going to disappear. And so what I like to describe to people who are uncomfortable with the numbers are these incidents were always happening. People just weren't reporting them. Yep, absolutely. And so now they're comfortable coming forward and getting the help and getting the assistance that they weren't comfortable trying to get before. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree. Um, yeah, I know for myself when I had an incident happen on campus many years ago, did not know I could report and yep. and said my grades suffered horribly. I almost, you know, had to take an extra semester of school, had a lot of mental health um, needs and because I didn't know that I could report. I didn't yep. know that was something that was even there or offered and, you know, instead it was really debilitating to my life yep. and luckily had the right professors who were like, there might be something wrong here. And um, I was able to remake up those classes. But yeah, it's just, you know, to be able to to have that awareness of those those things out there that, that can help everyone and provide resolution and set the students up for success as yep. they move forward is key. Um, so, I mean, I feel like we've covered so much today, <laughs> but uh, what really... What motivates you in this work that you're doing, and how are you continuing to working? I mean, you're in the immediate of like, this is what we have to do now, and the reports aren't going to go away, but how are you continuing to work to maybe ending violence on campus? We probably won't see that, but what are some things um, that you feel like are successfully you all are doing to maybe starting to see that curve of numbers go down? Well, so we actually hosted a play about three weeks ago now uh, it was called Intrusion, so every one of our student-athletes was there. Um, so about 400 student-athletes attended, and it was a play that was set 20 years in the future, and rapes no longer existed. Um, it was a, a unique premise, um, and so it was a one-woman play, and she played eight different characters. Oh, wow. And it highlighted the various different types of rape, um, and how rape culture had disappeared in only 20 years, and that it took a concerted effort from the entire um, 
country to make sure that it was eradicated and holding each other accountable for their behaviors. Um, and it just quickly diminished. It's a little unrealistic, mm -hmm. a little far-fetched, but the concept of it is great. The more that we raise awareness, the more that we educate, the more that we continue to program and ingrain in our young people's minds that this behavior is not okay, it's not gonna be tolerated, um, the quicker it is gonna start going away. Absolutely. Um, so, I think what motivates me is that no matter what the view of me is on campus, is that I know that for at least one student that I am viewed as a support resource and someone that they can go to um, and someone that understands not what they've been through, but what they may be going through. Um, because I've seen so many people involved in the process um, so they're willing to come to me and talk and ask for assistance and get the right supports that they need. Um, so I, I think the more that we, that's why I program a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of Title IX offices don't have the time or ability to program, but I think it's probably the number one priority that I have. Mm -hmm. um, so students do see us in that different light. Um, it motivates me to be seen on campus to get in front of our athletes, to get in front of our students to say, hey, we're here to listen to you. We're here to see where you guys are and meet you there, yep. instead of you coming to us. And so I think a lot of times what support resources struggle with on campus is we're so inundated with work that we don't go meet the students with where they are. Mm -hmm. And so the flipping that model and having, them, having us go to them really has been a huge motivating factor for me because the student engagement levels have just skyrocketed. Awesome. Um, to have 400 student athletes in one room for a training was astounding. And not only that, 200 of the 400 completed their assessments, which I know you're a speaker. Yeah. If we get about 10 out of a, a room of 100, we're usually doing pretty good on assessment. We got 50%. That's awesome. On a four four question questionnaire with actual feedback on what we could do differently or what kind of programs we can do that will actually have an impact on them. Yes. And so to me that's what motivates me because students are sort of grasping onto it now and, and I think what we do in college a lot is we do a lot of fun programming mm -hmm. but college is a place for them to learn. Yeah. And so that educational programming that's going to give them life skills and lessons um, is what is really pivotal in their growth. And so I think we're able to offer that, and it's really motivating. Absolutely. I know. I mean, I don't do a ton of university. When I do, like I was just at Penn State, I've gotten to speak at Norwich and did a big athlete, a whole athletes, all the athletes at um, Ohio Dominican last year. And just, you know, these are the people who are going to be leading our country. Yep. These are our future makers. And being able to talk about these subjects with them and seeing their, seeing their response, um, seeing their awareness, seeing and empathy or just changes in language and behavior, it's really motivating to be like, okay, like maybe we can, maybe it won't be 20 years, but maybe we actually can see a big difference. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I feel like that's a really good note to wrap <laughs> up on. Um, are there any more kind of main points that you feel like I've missed out on or things that you want to share around um, Title IX on campus? No, I mean, there's some fun programming that 
if people, community members are interested in learning about. Um, I would love for you to share that with us. <laughs> so generally all of our programming is housed at norwich.edu forward slash title hyphen IX. Okay. Um, but so this Friday we have what's called the Enlightenment Lunch, which is going to be a luncheon focusing on different identity groups um, and their cultures and statistics that are kind of shocking. Mm -hmm. um, it's a free community luncheon. Um, then we have Walk a Mile in Her Shoes, um, which is a national program yep. um, where men wear women's high heels and actually walk a mile around campus to raise awareness of um, gender stereotypes and also sexual violence towards women. Yep. Um, we also have um, Dr. Maura Cullen, who is a, a national expert who actually lives in Vermont, oh, great. Um, who will be coming on campus to talk about taking the adversity out of diversity. Okay. Um, we've already done a lot of our programming for this semester, um, but those are the big three that we still have left that I, I think are, are very exciting um, that I welcome anyone to come out to. And if anyone has awesome. programming ideas that they would like to see happen either in the local community or at Norwich specifically, because we do have the space to host it, mm -hmm. um, please reach out to us. Um, we're always happy to partner with community partners, um, collaborate or assist. I know we were helping develop a, a program for the Vermont Schools Against Racism conference that's being held at Randolph Union High School. Great. Um, so we're we're willing to be a, a very helpful community partner. That's awesome, and you've definitely proven that to be so. And I know I've enjoyed that partnership. We've enjoyed um, having you. Thank you, um, Matt Roche. It's been a pleasure hearing having you here today from Norwich University. Um, are there any resources or links you could say to kind of a broader Title IX that where people could learn more? Yeah, so the only one that I would say um, is Know Your Nine. Okay. Um, so Know Your Nine will go over the basics of what is required in a higher educational setting. Great. Um, and it's Know Your IX. Um, yep. So Title IX is the Roman numerals. Yes. Um, people struggle to find that, but that is probably a really helpful one if you just want to get a basic um, grounding in what Title IX really is, awesome. especially from a victim's perspective. Great. They're very victims he um, victim heavy. Okay, wonderful. Um, I always like to close with some sort of like a short positive message for people listening. So I feel like we're already ending on a really positive note, but just like any, any little message that you'd like to share out there. Well, I feel like I gave mine already. I think you did. <laughs> um, but, so I, I would just, I'll reiterate it. Um, I, I think that we are in a very positive space right now um, where students have gotten to a point of feeling comfortable coming forward and filing reports and getting assistance and, and being open to a university, being a resource for them. Mm -hmm. um, not just them being a student or a number of a student, but them actually feeling included on a campus and being able to get assistance. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of schools are doing a really good job in ensuring that that resource and support is available for their students. Awesome, thank you. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for being here today. Um, and thank you, everyone, for joining us. My name is Anna Nasset. If you have any suggestions for our show, The Men, please feel free to email me at Anna at StandUpResources.com. Thank you so much, be well, and we'll see you next time.